I'm going to invite Joey uh, Morningstar to come up and read uh, for us from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast unless you believed in vain. For I, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom were, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and, by, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is in me. Whether, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thanks, Joey. So we're nearing the end of uh, school years for our kids. We have end of grade testing coming up for uh, some of you in in college and graduate school, you might take the last test of your life coming up, um, but you're going to take a penultimate test this morning. So on the aisles, you, you have these cards and crayons. Uh, also, probably touched every single one of them by my daughter. Uh, please, please distribute those. Pass those out. Um, and there's a couple on the front if if we're shy. Make sure everyone has one. We've opted for crayons instead of number two pencils. There, there is no Scantron, so we should be okay. Does everyone have one, something to write on and something to write with? Okay, and like, like any testing site, the first thing that they're going to say is put away your cell phones, like put them out of view. Um, it used to be TI-83 calculators, but put those away also. And shame on you if you have that here. Um, <clears throat> okay, so everyone has their paper, everyone has their crayon. Now, the test has one question, and it's not memory verse from what Joey said. That would, that would have been a terrible trick on this Easter Sunday. <laughs> Welcome, visitors. Yeah. Um, your one question is, from memory, as best as you can, in the next 15 seconds, draw the Apple logo as accurately as possible. No cheating. I see. I see. Keep your eyes on your own papers. This is not a group project. Crayons down. <laughs> How many looked identical to this? 
Not close, identical. I don't know if that's a pass or a fail, if that's the case. It, like, you probably messed up which way the stem is tilted or what side that bite is taken out of, or maybe you didn't put a dimple on the bottom, you know, things like that. A team of uh, UCLA researchers had 85 UCLA graduates, and this is no, no commentary on UCLA undergrads, had 85 UCLA undergrads um, reproduce the same test you guys took. You, your bursar fees will be due later. Um, and only one out of that 85 was able to draw this correctly. And that, that's pretty surprising. We, I think we had one, and this is roughly 85. So um, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. And, and the same, this is, the same has been found kind of with, with other very familiar things. Uh, typists have been asked to reproduce a keyboard that they, they can, you know, type 120 words a minute and they can't reproduce a keyboard that they know. Or pennies, like how many of us know what a penny really looks like, or road signs. Um, one of the, the senior authors of the study said there's a striking discrepancy between participants' confidence prior to drawing the logo and how well they performed on the task. People's memory, even for extremely common objects, is much poorer than they believe it to be. Dallas Willard once wrote something similar to that, that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. And Paul, in this letter to the Corinthians, writes to these brothers and sisters, and they're battling some dysfunctions. The first part of this first letter, so they needed a follow-up consultation uh, also. The first part of this first letter, he's countered some of their mistakes having to do with sex or uh, meat sacrifice to idols or community worship. Now, in the 15th chapter, he goes back to the start. He peels back their layers of unfaith to show them what their faith was really based on in the first place. This is of first importance. Their familiarity with the gospel has bred unfamiliarity, unknown to them. They've drifted to the point of forgetting their first love, or at least their gospel basics they've obscured. That Christ died for their sins in accordance to the scriptures, was buried, was raised on the third day, also fulfilling the scriptures, and that he appeared to the disciples. Paul gives them the benefit of the doubt that once they did know the gospel, they've just simply forgotten. That they've experienced salvation. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've drunk deeply from the saving fount of grace from Calvary's cross. He reminds them, he reminds us on this Easter Sunday that Jesus died for our sins. His death had a purpose. His suffering was meaningful. It's meaning having to do with each and every one of us. Anyone that's ever taken a breath. The prophet Isaiah foreshadowed this, that Jesus' death was for our sake and in our place by, by talking about the suffering servant who would come and by his stripes, we would be healed. 
Paul then confirms that Jesus was placed in that tomb. This seems obvious. That's what happens to dead people. Holy Saturday, yesterday, is that sorrowful pause between Good Friday's sufferings and Easter Sunday's victory. And it's also meaningful. It's also of first importance, part of Paul's gospel to them. Philippians 2 says that Jesus made himself nothing, emptied himself, poured himself completely out, became the form of a slave. Nothing about Christ's experience was superficial. He would defeat sin and start the new creation by completely exhausting the old way of being human. That way, you know, that, that way of being human took fear for granted. And, and that fear was real because death was the end. And Jesus experienced that death. He experienced the despair. He experienced the hell of forsakenness. So that we needn't. <laughs> That's the good news. That's the miracle. It struck me yesterday. I was like, around the house. Rach had this market and I was watching the kids all day. I was, uh, I was smoking this turkey for potluck and, and worrying about this sermon. And it struck me how different my experience on that Saturday was from Jesus' disciples. <laughs> As Jesus lay dead, they feared. Sin still was the operative emotion and, and operative uh, ruler. The old way still gripped them. People didn't come back from what had just happened. They didn't know. It was like they got, when you get fired and you don't know what's coming next. <laughs> when Jesus died, their hope died. Whatever that hope was, some of them it was, it was political revolution. Some of them it was restoration for Israel. Some of them it was a, a peasant uprising, a new age to come. But then Jesus rose. Or more accurately, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The father raised his son by his spirit. God has done exactly as he said he would in a completely unexpected way. Isn't that how God works most often in our lives? Exactly how he said he would. And we hardly ever even see it. God, the faithful one, he's fulfilling his promises, acting out of the abundance of his grace, his loving kindness, the whole of scripture uh, pointing to this, the creator of God forming a people, a rescue mission, and then sending his son to die and to gather that people back around himself. Sending him as the most unexpected king. That's what we celebrate when we sing songs like uh, Come People of the Risen King. That unexpected king coming against all of our ways of wielding power and being king. Coming home to reestablish justice and beauty, shalom, wholeness, putting this world to rights. And he'd do this through his, his son, Jesus, who's now the, the prototype the new prototype of what it means to be human. It's a new future. 
This is, this is exciting stuff. This is revolutionary stuff. A new humanity. If Adam showed us what old humanity looked like, flawed humanity, the humanity that each and every one of us know, it's our inevitable family resemblance, Jesus shows us a new way. The first fruits, Scripture says, of new creation. Bearing scars on his hands and his side and his feet. Scars from the crown of thorns. But not wounds. They're healed. They're transfigured. They're transfigured into the life uh, that someone has that's no longer bound, no longer motivated by fear or self-preservation because you don't have to fear death anymore because it doesn't have a hold. Romans 5 says, for many died by the trespass of one man. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? He goes on, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life, life that doesn't stop, life that starts now through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then this risen son appeared and appeared and appeared <laughs> and appeared to, to Paul, to, he says, to me. While Jesus might have kept his messianic identity secret in Mark's gospel. Here the secret is out. After Jesus rises from the dead, the secret is out. A few weeks ago we heard Jesus' desperate words from the cross. We, we spent Lent go, going through all the words from the cross. He, he had the, the words of Psalm 22 on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the same words that kind of that, that we can hear if we listen carefully. They echo uh, from our neighbors. They echo in uh, hospital halls when parents cry, "Where are you, God?" But we saw that that was also just the beginning of the psalm. The fertile ground for its resurrective conclusion. The victorious, He has done it. Look up Psalm 22. Look at the beginning and look at the end. He has done it. Jesus' resurrection and his appearance to his friends, to us, cracks open the world into a he has done it world. Perhaps, perhaps you, you fit into the mold of one of these witnesses. It's so great that we have this list of witnesses. Maybe you're like Peter. At one time you were close to Jesus. When you were going, uh, when things started get, getting tough, though, you found a way to, to kind of distance yourself from Jesus. Though. That's not me. I'm not him. <laughs> that was what Peter said. But then the risen Jesus shows up in Peter's threefold denial. I don't know him. That's not me. No way. It gets changed into a threefold mission. Jesus questioned, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And Peter responds, I do. Jesus then gives him a job. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Where Peter couldn't bear the thought of bearing Jesus' cross, he now becomes Jesus' vice good shepherd. 
How about that? What a job. This resurrection life means there's work to do. The tender, life-giving work of caring for those who Jesus loves. Loving his church and laying down your life for it. Or maybe you're like one of the others, one of the 12 that he mentions. Maybe you're like Thomas. Thomas needed verifiable data, right? Thomas needed even more than sight. His faith needed even more than sight. He needed to put his finger in Christ's scars to touch what was once the end of his friend and now is the beginning of a world made new. Or maybe you're like one of the 500 others. What a number, 500 others. Each, I imagine, in their own way, having their own story of encounter with the man who couldn't die any longer. His appearances are so numerous, and, and Paul goes to the length to say, many of them are still walking around. Go talk to him. Go talk to her. Jesus' resurrection wasn't some wives' tale or a hallucination. It wasn't a, a good or a bad dream. It was a collective experience, a personal individual experience that each and every one of these people had their own account. Even James, Jesus' own half-brother. If anyone's not going to mistake in Jesus, it's probably going to be his brother. I imagine that like the four gospel accounts that we read, uh, people trying to draft the good news of Jesus, I imagine there's more than 500 personal gospel accounts of this good news that they exist maybe not written down, but in the minds and family histories that they'd seen him, they'd been in the presence of this man who wasn't just resuscitated, he, he was resurrected. And then around us we have these, these stories, these little resurrections. Uh, even in this building that we're meeting in right now, do you realize one year ago, 365 days ago, it was the final meeting for Lakewood Baptist Church uh, in this building. And, and Lakewood Baptist Church had, had even in their, their sorrow of, of ending as a church, they had the imagination for this little resurrection of starting something new, of, of, of approaching uh, the gathering church. And, and we didn't even know what that was going to look like. And we still don't know what it will look like this time next year. And, and this imagination for little resurrections, rebirths, renewal. Maybe it's in your job. Like um, in, in our home group, we talked to uh, Will and Sarah aren't here, but Will Hammond, who, who tells this uh, story of, of being in a job that's just killing him, literally killing him. Uh, overworking him, uh, just taxing him, draining his passion, his imagination, his ability to, to be present um, at home. And so he ended it. <laughs> and now he, he cares for um, and, and befriends and comes alongside uh, a gentleman, which is definitely a, a, a step down um, as, a, as a caretaker in, in the kind of money and the kind of trajectory of his life. But he has the imagination to imagine this as a small Resurrection, new life, renewal. Maybe it's in a marriage that you're in that's going bad or has gone bad. Maybe you can't imagine that that marriage has anything beyond death. But now there's, there's a chance. There's a small resurrection on the horizon. Maybe it's, maybe it's in not being able to have a kid or maybe it's in having a kid unexpectedly. 
that that becomes a chance, an opportunity for God to work, the God that raised Jesus by His Spirit to provide new life, new opportunity, little resurrections. And then Paul talks about finally, last, and, and he would probably say least, he says, Jesus even showed up to me. It took a, a blinding light. It took him getting knocked on his butt. But even Paul got in on the action. Over and over in Paul's writing, he shares his autobiography, like all the things that he has to his name. And he generally does this to show how little his spiritual accolades matter in the scheme of God's forgiveness granted to him in Jesus. Even Paul, and, and we kind of let Paul a little off easy because he's, he's, he's such a, a father in the Christian faith, but Paul was a murderous fundamentalist terrorist, and he was transformed. Even Paul in, in this passage says, I was abnormally born, and we don't even know how to translate that. It generally has that ghastly ring of him being spiritually stillborn, aborted. And even Paul was invited to the party. Even Paul, in his weakness, his unlikeliness, his hostility, he wasn't considered beyond the pale of Jesus' resurrective ability to change the game, transformation. At the end of John's letter, he, he talks about why he decided to write about Jesus showing up over and over to these different people. In John 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe in Jesus. You may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why we're that's why we meet on Easter Sunday. That's why we read about these and we, we recollect. That's why we, we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. That's why we perform um, the, these, uh, these scriptures. That's why we come to this table each week. And Paul sketches something that we often forget. He, he uses broad strokes of the good news by which we are saved. Because we need to remember. <laughs> we need to remember every week these broad strokes. Christ's death, his burial, his rising, and his showing up in our lives. It's like that Apple logo, which is an elaborate trick for you guys. We often think we have it down pat, this gospel. But in reality, we forget Little things about it, the way the stem tilts or the little dimple or what side it's facing. We turn this good news into something about us, something we can do or have done or have failed to do, rather than something unbelievable that God has done for this world. Something unbelievable. Raising Jesus from the dead. And he invites us to continually reorient our lives around that, to 
to reshape our world around this new paradigm. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. To look through and to live through that lens. What, what would change in our lives if we looked through that lens, if we weren't so afraid all the time? What, what would happen if, if we start to live that stanza of, that Lord, of the Lord's Prayer that we always pray, that um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this, this overlap starts to happen, and that's what we celebrate this Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is the start of that reality, that if there's any room for resurrection in the way we look at the world, it now has to be our starting point, that Jesus has risen from the dead. On this Easter Sunday, you're invited to be a part of that. Invited to be a part of this story with Peter and Paul, with countless others who have met a God that's still so active in this world. You're invited to to look around and and catch little glimpses, little little resurrections happening all around us in in other, other people's lives, sometimes unbeknownst to them. You have to tell them about it. Sometimes you need to tell them about how God has risen something in your own life. Little sprouts that are coming up through hard ground after a a really tough winter. Empty tombs in our own sinful, fearful habits that give way to new life with God, with others. Hope, hope, joy. That following Jesus and his death means following Jesus into eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, because of Jesus, we we know you not, not only as the God who creates, who breathes, life, but the God who recreates, who breathes new life, who creates not just out of nothing, out of a blank slate, but who redeems, who takes dead bodies and animates them. We know you not just as a God of of peace, but as a God of hope, a God that gives us the kind of hope that allows us to, to do creative things, to look at this world creatively and to not settle, to be unsettled, to be restless, to know that things are not there yet, things are not the way they need to be, and that Jesus' resurrection is, is, is the beginning, is the cure and that we're called into that. We thank you so much. We thank you for this little church on our first Easter, this little body of Christ. We ask that you raise us to new life for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our enemies. We thank you for your spirit who does all this. We pray all this in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.